0: Turn if you would to the second chapter, hello, Bill, of the book of Romans. We continue to work through the book of Romans. Uh, the key verse we have up there, Romans 1:17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, "The just shall live by faith." We started in chapter 1 with the good news about the gospel, and then halfway through chapter 1, we hit the bad news. And we have been wallowing in the bad news for about three weeks. Next week, we'll finish it off, and it'll be really bad. But then we hit the good news, starting midway through chapter 3. So, last week, we started chapter 2, and remember, what we're dealing with is... The fact that there is no excuse. But I've never heard the gospel. Doesn't matter. You should know about God from the creation that he created. But I'm a good person. And chapter 2 has been dealing with people who think they're good. But they're really not. And we ended up last week with, well, we ended up in verse uh, 11 where it says, For God shows no partiality. He's not going to let you into heaven just because you belong to this group, that group, this church, that church, this country, that country, this family, that family. It doesn't matter. There's one standard for everyone, and that is, are you or are you not doing what God told you to do? And the reality, and we'll see this in very bold letters next week, the reality is you're not. So if you're not doing it, and yet God is going to save you, then he is going to have to save you. He is going to do it through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And maybe we'll get to that next week also. So picking up in verse 12, he's going to address specifically the Jewish members of the church in Rome. Okay, the first half of the chapter uh, the commentaries kind of debate whether it's just to the Jews or to its, whether it's toward anyone who thinks they're doing okay on their own. The second half of it is probably directed to the Jews because he's going to talk about the law and he's going to talk about circumcision. So picking it up in verse 12. For all have, who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So we have two groups of people, those who know about the law and those who don't. Real quick, who are these? The first group, the ones who don't know about it, that's all of us, the pagans, the Gentiles. To a Jewish audience, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. The whole world is divided into those two groups. To a Greek audience, there's Greeks and there's barbarians. Okay, so go figure. For those who have sinned without the law, he is talking to the Gentile community. For those who have sinned that didn't have the written law, they are still going to be judged without the law. They will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that would be the Jewish community who had received the law, you know, the stone tablets brought down from the mountain, Moses getting all the word. You will be judged according to the law. Hmm, that's kind of strange. Why is he saying this? Because everybody's going to be judged. You're not going to show up and say, well, I didn't see the law. Doesn't matter. More on that in just a moment. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Once again, we break it up into two groups of people. There are those who hear the law, and there are those who do the law. The hearers would be, well, you sit in church all of your life. From the day you're old enough to sit down to the day you die, you go to church, and you hear the word of God over and over and over again. But it never occurs to you that you ought to go do it. It never occurs to you that it ought to be the standard and guide of your entire life. And what he's saying is that's not going to do you any good. A Jewish person going to their synagogue, going to, sitting in their good Jewish home, would have heard the law repeatedly. Over and over again, it would have been read to them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord who brought you out of, Is- of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before you. Thou shalt not take any images. Thou shalt not use the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not, you know the list, right? It's interesting, you know, you do a survey, and in Christian communities, a good church-going person can name six of them. Six of the ten. We actually did this when we worked through the book of uh, Exodus last year, And collectively, we were able to come up with the 10, okay? But a Jewish household, a Jewish person who was in, in any form pious would have heard the law repeatedly. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, over and over again. And you get to the point where you believe because you have heard it repeatedly over and over again, that you're okay. And he's saying no. There's two groups, those who have heard it and those who do it. It's kind of like the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the picture of the people who built their house on the rock versus those who built the house on the sand? What's the difference? Some have heard and put it into practice. Some have heard and didn't put it into practice. The ones who are going to be justified are the ones who do what God has required them to do. For when Gentiles, that would be us, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Huh, what does that mean? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When the Gentile follows the law, when he does what is right, even though he doesn't have the law, he is demonstrating that the law is written on their hearts. The book of Romans is full of important philosophical theological truths that we have to understand in order to understand the world that we live in. You know, we started back in chapter 1 where it says everybody knew the truth, but they suppressed the truth. And we had a discussion about what that reveals about... um, where religions come from, various religions, they all are somehow suppressing the truth and ending up with some weir- really weird things because they choose to worship the created order and not the creator. The next big question is, why do we know what is right and why do we know what is wrong? And if we know what is right and what is wrong, why do we continually to do the wrong but if we're doing the wrong, why don't we do more wrong? Why aren't we as bad as we could be? And why would I even make the sentence, why are we as bad as we could be? What does the word bad mean in that sentence? If there's no standard by which to judge our activities, there is no right and wrong. So how, where, why Do people stand up in public and say what you're doing is wrong because the law of God is written on the human heart? Now, we know, back to chapter 1, that just as the knowledge of God should have been known but people suppressed the truth, the reality of God's moral standard should be known because it has implanted he has implanted it in our hearts, yet we suppress the truth. You don't I mean, the examples of this are just massive. Teresa and I have been well, I hate to say this, we watched the miniseries The Winds of War. How many of y'all remember when that came out? A long time ago. So we finished off that one and we started the sequel to it, War and Remembrance. And the episode that we watched on Friday night, Himmler showed up and wanted to watch the final solution in action. And it was interesting because I went and looked on Wikipedia. They had to go get permission from the, the TV people to show nudity in primetime television. My hell times have changed. Because they wanted to show the, the you know the people being stripped and run into the gas chambers and they showed it. And the author uh, had a stipulation in the contract that once they started that, there would be no commercial breaks until the end of it because he didn't want some car commercial showing up in the middle of his very moving scene. But the interesting thing to me was not that all this horrific stuff was going on and it was horrific. The cameras weren't watching the horrific stuff. I mean, it showed it, but that wasn't the (coughs) main point. The cameras were on the people watching the event. What was it doing to their heart watching? And you could just see, you know, some people were acclimated to it. They had accepted it. And some people were like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? But they were in a group of people, and they couldn't say that. And it was just fascinating. Why did they do it? And why didn't they do worse? Did they have a heart or did they not? Did they have a conscience or did they not? To understand this, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Let me recreate the creation story. You ready for this? On day 1, God made some stuff and said it was good. On day 2, he made some more stuff and said it was good. On the third day, he made more stuff and said it was good. On the fourth day, and the sixth day, he created man and said it was good. And he rested because all of creation was good. Well, if all creation's good, why are we so bad? Because in chapter 3, and we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks, when we deal with Adam, Adam and Eve rejected the will of God and sinned. And all of that which was good, which ought to be good, has been suppressed. Why is the law of God written on our hearts? So we are without excuse. If the law of God is written on our hearts, why do we do wicked things? Because we suppress the truth. Why are we not worse than we are? Because we have the law of God written on our hearts. If you are an evolutionary psychologist, I love this field. (laughs) You've heard me talk about it before. There was an article in Scientific American years ago about the field, and it, it was like he was making fun of it, almost. The purpose of evolutionary psychology is to try to explain, in evolutionary terms, why we do good things. I mean, that's it. Why should I? Risk my life to save another. Evolutionally, evolutionarily, that just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do the things that are good if they don't bring you value? And they've come up with lots and lots of theories of why that's true. I mean, it's fascinating to me, the theories they can come up with. But the reality is they're trying to explain through natural means, something that God has implanted on our hearts. Why do we do what is good? Why does some pagan, and I use that just because I like the word, (laughs) why does someone who has never been inside a church, a mosque, a synagogue, or any other religion, Why do they do good things? Why do they love their kids? Why do they love their spouses? Why do they work hard at work? Because the law of God is written on their hearts. Why do we as believers do stupid and rotten things? Because we're sinners just like the pagans. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's back up and read this again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, they didn't have the stone tablets brought down the mountain by Moses, written by God. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Now, a law unto themselves has the idea they're making it up. But that's not what he's talking about. They're demonstrating that they have a Physical copy of the law within them. They're showing that they have the law. There's another phrase in the Bible for people who make up their own stuff. You know, whenever in the Old Testament they want to show a society that's really bad, they say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're going to have a long discussion about that much, much later in the book. That's not what he's talking about here. What he is talking about is that they demonstrate that the law of God is written on their hearts. The fact that they didn't have the stone tablet doesn't excuse them. They show that the work of the law, the work of the law, that is the business part of the law, not the... Physical stone tablets of the law, the work of the law, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, sometimes accusing and sometimes excusing. Huh. You do something wrong, and your conscience says, that was really bad, I shouldn't have done that. Okay? Or you do something right, and your conscience says, that was good. You're, you did what was right. If we have a conscience, why do we ignore it? And that's the discussion we've had repeatedly in this class. We had it in the book of Exodus numerous times, and we will have it in the book of Romans numerous times, when we talk about the hardening of your heart. That's what we're talking about. The way I look at it is pretty simple. You're Desire is to do something. And your conscience says, don't do it. But you know, you really want to do it. It really looks appealing. So you do it. And the next time, the same desire comes up and you, and you want to do it. And your conscience says, don't do it. And the next time it says, don't do it. And the next time, you can't even hear it. Because you have hardened your hearts I mean you go to a well, you go to one of the church services you go to a concert and you have this loud music well you know you stuff enough wax in your ears you can't hear the loud music isn't that amazing because you're hearing it doesn't change the volume of sound being produced you just can't hear it because you put on your earmuffs, or whatever you put on. And that's what it means to harden your conscience. You have heard the word of God, the voice of conscience telling you what is right and wrong, and you've said no. And all of a sudden, the voice is weaker and weaker. And that is why the pagan, no, the Gentile in this case, is without excuse. Because he ought to, to have known what is right is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts. I like that word, conflicting thoughts. How many of you have ever had conflicting thoughts? <laughs> Don't raise your hand if you haven't. Well, you've got a problem. I mean, we're going to see this in Romans chapter uh, what eight. Seven. Seven. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. We've all had conflicting thoughts, but if you are a Gentile, you don't have the law, you can sit there and go, should I do this or should I not? Well, there's nothing external that tells me not to. I feel like doing this. I I know I have this thing called a con, but I and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and then you go do something. The Written law, and we'll have a discussion of this either here or when we get much later on into chapter 7. The written law simply makes it so there's no doubt this is what you ought to do. You may still choose to do something else. I mean, the nation of Israel chose repeatedly to do something else. The law itself, hmm, what did it just say? Being a hearer of the word, being a hearer of the law, doesn't make you right. Having it written on your heart doesn't make you right if you don't put it into practice. It is the doers of the law who will be justified before God. Conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men By Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week when we talked about storing up the wrath. You think you've gotten away with it, but you haven't. Eventually, the penalty has to be paid. So, on that day when God judges the secrets of men, tell me your deepest, darkest secret. No, don't tell it to me. You'd be embarrassed. I'd be embarrassed. We'd have to leave the class and never come back. (laughs) What is the old saying? If a mirror revealed the secrets of a man's heart, we'd outlaw mirrors. Something like that. God knows the true condition of your heart. God is going to judge based on his standard of righteousness. There aren't going to be any secrets. You can be a pagan, a Gentile, a Jew, a Greek, a barbarian, and live in Fort Worth or Timbuktu, and God's going to know the truth. You go into a courtroom today, and they're trying to determine what the truth is. Hmm. Hmm. Sometimes they do it well. Sometimes they don't do it well. Sometimes you're never sure. Sometimes you're just kind of making it up as you go along. God's not going to have that problem. God, who is all-knowing, God, who is all-righteous, God, who does not show partiality, God is the just God. And He is going to judge the secrets of our hearts. Oh, my. The secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Huh. Christ will be the standard by which you and I will be judged. Hmm. We'd better quit and go home. I told you last week, and I, and I cheated. I did. I gave in and did what I said I wasn't going to do. The last half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and half of chapter 3 are all the bad news. And I would just so love to tell you the bad news and quit and go home. I just would love to do that. But, you know, I worry. I worry that sometimes we forget the good news. The good news is chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. There is a righteousness apart from the law. Why is that? Remember last week's illustration. We sin, and there is a bucket of God's wrath. But he doesn't drop the bucket of God's wrath on us. He sets it aside. He is storing it up. He might use an eyedropper and drop a little bit of it on us just so we know that we ought to repent. But throughout our lives, these buckets keep accumulating. Something has to be done with the buckets. And what we're going to learn and what we will continue to learn through the book of Romans is all those buckets were dumped on Jesus Christ on Calvary. That's the good news. But I didn't tell that to you because I want you to know, I want you to really appreciate the state of humanity apart from God, which is we are without excuse and there's going to be a judgment. Now, I skipped over a few words. According to my gospel, huh, first off, when he says my, doesn't mean that he's saving. It means that he's preaching it. Why is this part of the gospel? I mean, gospel is good news. The gospel is God has a wonderful plan for your life. Come on, join the team. We're going in. Isn't that the gospel? Yes, sort of, kind of randomly thrown together but the gospel begins with the need for you or the pagan or the jewish person or the gentile or the greek or the barbarian to understand that they need a savior the gospel can't start with god has a wonderful plan for your life well it can start there if the next sentence is and you've really muffed it and it's called sin It's all part of the gospel. You can't take away the wrath of God and have any gospel left. You can do marriage counseling. You can do life counseling. You can teach people how to raise their kids. But there's no gospel if there's no sin. There's no thing that you have to overcome, to put behind you, to deal with. Yes, sir. You have to at least. Right. That's what. Yeah. They have to know that they need a Savior. And somebody's phone's going off. We'll embarrass them. <laughs> no, we won't. We'll all look away. <laughs> On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, we can sit here and we can argue in circles to try to explain away behavior that God's word clearly says is wrong. We can pass court orders that say what we believe is right, is wrong, or wrong, is right, or whichever way you want to go. We can talk ourselves into it till we're blue in the face. And trust me, we've done that. We as individuals, we as a society, we as churches have done that. But God is going to judge according to his standard. He's not going to look at the U.S. Constitution. He's not going to look at the Bill of Rights. He's not going to look at this court document, you know, the, the U.N. Uh, laws of human rights. He's not going to look at any of that. He's going to look at his righteous standard, and that's what his judgment is going to be based on. If it doesn't scare the bejeebers out of you, you haven't really understood it. But if you call yourself a Jew, and this is one of those rhetorical questions, you know, he's talking to the Jews in the group. I don't think he's talking to you and I who call ourselves, I've never called myself a Jew, okay? But if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Baptist, I was raised a Baptist, and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Wow, that's a great list. These are all good things, okay? These aren't things that are bad that they're doing. These are things they ought to have been doing. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. You were supposed to rely on the law. You were supposed to do what God told you to do. Remember, before they went into the promised land, after they went into the promised land, they sat on the mountain and said, this group said all the blessings, this side said all the curses. You do what God tells you to do, good things happen. You do what God tells you not to do, and bad things happen. End of story. It was pretty clear. They were supposed to do these things. They were supposed to rely on the law. Boast in God. Why would they boast in God? They were God's chosen people. I mean, that's a big deal, isn't it? Know his will. What was his will? His will was that they do what he told them to do. Okay. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. There was a whole sacrificial system. There was a system of dietary laws. They had laws out the wazoo. God told them what to do. What was his will? Do those things. Pretty simple. And to prove what is excellent. What is excellent? Doing what God tells you to do. And doing it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what is excellent. You know these things. He's talking to the Jewish community, you know all of this because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, huh, what does it mean to be a guide to the blind? You see the guy in our church who walks around, is blind, he's always got his hand on somebody's shoulder. I always remember when I was in college over at UTA, there was a blind guy on the campus, and I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, I thought it was, you know, he'd walk to an intersection, And somebody, just some random person, would stand there and and help him across the street. I helped him across the street. You were a guide to the blind. Why? Because they were mentally incompetent? No, they just couldn't see. And they needed somebody with eyes to point them in the right direction. You, the nation of Israel, were supposed to be the guide to the blind people. Now... What does a rotten, nasty person do? He takes the blind person and walks him into a wall. You know, you can do that. Wouldn't that be funny? No, because you're taking his limitation and you're using it against him. So you, Jewish community, you think you're a guide to the blind? You should be a guide to the blind because you have the law. An instructor of the foolish Remember, we've said this repeatedly. You go back to the book of Proverbs. The fool is not the person who's just ignorant. That's a simpleton, the person who is simple in the book of Proverbs. The fool is the person who has seen, heard, recognized the word of God and said, no. No, I'm not going to do that. And those who had the law were supposed to instruct those who were being foolish, A teacher of children having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's an interesting phrase. I'm not going to really um, dispute it, okay? There are those who might. You want to know who God is? Look at his moral character. How is his moral character revealed in the law? The law contains knowledge and truth. I mean, look at this. What does the book of Proverbs tell us? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and elsewhere the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, entail? Knowing what God requires of you and doing it. That is what The fear of God is. It's not being a hearer of the word. It is a doer of the word. So if the fear of the Lord begins with an understanding of God, and that's what is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, then what does it say here? The law is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. In a couple of chapters, we'll have a longer discussion about the law because it'll tell us, I mean, isn't the law bad? If, if all it does is condemn us, if all it is is a club to beat us over the head with, isn't it bad? I mean, let's face it. If I gave you a, a, a measuring stick to go measure something and the stick was crooked, you'd go, that's a bad stick. Well, if the law can't help us, all it can do is condemn us, it must be a bad stick. No. No. It is the righteousness of God. It is the gospel that we have to know. If you are all of these things, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You've got all these benefits, all these good things, and we'll have several more lessons that deal with that. Why don't you listen to what you teach? Why is it that when you're preaching against a particular sin, you run off and commit that same sin yourself? Or rather, why when you judge others of just sinning in general, you are just as bad a sinner as they are? If you, Jewish community, you, religious community, you Baptist, you members of the Bible church, you fill in the blank with whatever denomination you want, why is it that when you claim to have the word of God, you go do all the things that you're not supposed to do? Don't you know that you are blaspheming the name of God when you do these things? I mean, I'll make the story as vague as I can possibly make it. But I knew this guy one time, and I wanted to call his church up. I really did. It wasn't our church, but it's a church that many of us were familiar with. Because I wanted them to tell him, either A, change your behavior, or B, stop telling people you go to that church. (laughs) It's an embarrassment. I mean, you've heard the old joke, right? The policeman pulls the car over and drags the driver out of the car and yelling at him, you get down on the ground, what are you doing? He says, officer, what was wrong? And he said, well, you were driving so erratically and I saw that church bumper sticker, I assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> Something like that. How do we blaspheme God by not living up to what God has revealed to us. Now, does that mean that we have to be perfect to impress our neighbors? No. We're all adults. We know we're not perfect. Well, I do. I don't know about you. If you think you are, ask your spouse. (laughs) It is Valentine's Day, right? But we should be different. You, the Jewish community, were given the law. You were supposed to be guides to the blind. You were supposed to instruct the foolish. And yet you keep doing the exact same things that you're preaching against. He gives three examples. Stealing, adultery, and hmm, robbing temples of idols. Kind of odd examples. Does this mean that they were out physically killing people? Could be. Were they out physically committing adultery? Quite possibly. You know, we we see this in the newspaper almost regularly. A preacher who preached against adultery and gets caught up in adultery. Okay, we've seen it enough that we know it happens. And then if you throw Jesus' instructions on top of that, You know, you think that you're okay because you haven't committed adultery, but I tell you that it's a condition of the heart, and if you have lusted in your heart, you have committed adultery. And then all of a sudden, hmm, all of a sudden, the rich young ruler begins to think, maybe I'm not as good as I think that I am. What is the purpose of this passage? To convince you that you're not as good as you think you are. He's writing it to a Jewish community, telling them that you are not as good as you think you are. What was the last sentence of last week's lesson? God shows no partiality. In fact, in fact, you could almost make the argument from the Bible that to whom much is given, much is required. When we know the truth, And we reject the truth, we are in deeper trouble than if we didn't know the truth to begin with. Wait, then isn't it better not to tell people the truth? It would be, except for this small problem the truth is written on their hearts. They know the truth, they've rejected the truth. The Jewish community had the written law, they really knew the truth, they were without excuse. And they chose to do something else. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. Circumcision. We'll talk about this a couple of times in the book of Romans. Uh, No, I didn't bring any pictures. (laughs) But you remember, Abraham was called to go to a land, I'll tell you when you get there. And at some point, God instituted circumcision as the mark of the covenant. Now, it's like we've said before, and every preacher that you hear talking about this passage, it seems like a really strange mark. Okay? It's not very public. You know, if I tattooed it on my forehead, that would be a mark. Everybody would see it. Circumcision, nobody sees but it is a picture of the circumcision of the heart that we will talk about later. You don't see the heart either, heart in the biblical sense of the center of your mind, will, and emotions. You don't see that either. But you know it, and since you know it, you act a certain way because you know it. Circumcision meant you were part of the covenant family but it ought to have changed the way you behaved. The mark itself is just a mark if it doesn't produce faith. For circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, then being in the covenant is a great thing. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes a Uncircumcision. It's just as if you never had that mark, that sign of the covenant. It's just as if you were outside the community of the faithful. You, the Jewish community, had the law, you had the sign of the covenant, you took the sign, you loved the sign, you loved being in the inner circle, and you went and did your own thing, and you think God's going to let you in because you had a piece of your body whacked off when you were an infant. It's as if you were uncircumcised. You know, to a Jewish male, that would be quite an insult to tell them. It's as if you weren't part of the community. You are uncircumcised. Why? Because God has blasphemed among the Gentiles, because they're doing their own thing. So, if a man who is uncircumcised, that would be a non-Jewish person in this context, keeps the precepts of the law, why would he do that? Because they're written on his heart. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That's weird. What's more important? The sign of the covenant or doing what God wants you to do? Now, obviously, the right answer is the sign of the covenant and doing what God asks you to do. But if you're only going to do one, which one's going to save you? It is interesting if you read about the early church, like after the book of Acts ends. um, For the pagans, particularly the Greek pagans, the idea of circumcision was just repulsive to them. And the Judaizers came along and said, basically, in order to be a good Christian, you have to be a good Jew first. And the Greeks said, no way, Jose, I'm an adult male, you're not going to take that knife to me. Go away. So there was lots of debate in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians about whether circumcision was necessary, and the final answer was no. It's just a sign of the old covenant, and as a sign, it's good Don't get me wrong, it's good as a sign of the covenant because it's better to be in the covenant. It's better to raise your child in a church. But your child can be raised in a church and grow up and be a devout pagan. But it's still better to be raised in a church because at least they are exposed to the gospel. But if they're exposed and rejected, didn't we just talk about that? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. I've got the sign of the covenant. I was baptized in a Baptist church. I have a Bible. It's sitting on the shelf at home. I'm in, right? No. No. When the uncircumcised keeps the law when he takes his conscience and does what he his conscience tells him is right he is demonstrating that he is more right with God than you Jewish community who have the sign and have the law but don't do anything about it he will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. This is cool, by the way. What we begin to th- see is that all that stuff in the Old Testament are pictures and signs for us. Now, was it a truthful, a real covenant that God made with Abraham yes it wasn't just a picture if they had followed the sacrificial system by faith if they had been circumcised and followed God's will by faith they would have been right with God because they were doing what God told them to do but as we've seen in every covenant that is based on you and I doing something we fall apart We can't hold up our end of it. So, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. No one is part of the covenant community just because you got a part of your body whacked off when you were an infant. That's not enough. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. You've got the Jewish community. You've got the very pious Jewish guy who walks down the street and everybody says, there's a nice pious Jewish guy. Raw, raw. But it's all outward. We saw this throughout the ministry of Christ in his dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees kept the letter of the law... Every chance they got. And they totally ignored the spiritual side of it. Totally. 100% ignored it. And what Paul, the best Jew you could dream up. I mean, he was a Jew of the Jews. What he's telling them is, that is not going to save you. You can be raised in a barn and you're not a cow. You can grow up in a mechanic shop and you're not a car. You can be raised in a religious community and follow all the outward signs and it will not save you. Now, isn't it fun bashing the Jews? No. This isn't talking about Jewish people per se. It's talking about all of us who think that our religious activities in and of themselves are going to save us. They're not going to. Now, the religious activities are good. Being part of the covenant was good. Being an instructor of the foolish and the guide to the blind was good. Knowing the law was good. All those things were good But if not done by faith, they will not, cannot save you. So we get to the end of chapter 2, and the question is simply this. What external activity, whatever it is, no matter how good it is, are you doing because you think that that will save you? Apart from faith, apart from faith, apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, you cannot, will not be saved. The phrase we keep using over and over in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is, you are without excuse. But I didn't know the truth. Yes, you did. You knew it and you suppressed it. Chapter 1. I didn't know I was supposed to worship God. Yes, you did. And you went worshiping after something else. I didn't know what was right and wrong. Yes, you did, and you suppressed the truth, and God shows no partiality. But I'm part of this group, and it's a really good... In fact, it's the group God called. If you're not a doer of the word, God will not show partiality, and he will not let you in. Does that mean, Paul is going to ask us later, that the law is bad? No. No. The, the, the law is holy and right. The problem is not the law. The problem is not God. The problem is you and me. And if you think that's bad, you don't want to come to next week's lesson <laughs> because it's going to be really bad. But then, but then, we get to verse 21. There is a righteousness of God That is by faith from first to last. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided the solution to the problem of our sin. I pray, Lord, that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.